welcome to Battling with Business with Gareth Tennant and Chris Kitchener. You know the drill by now, this is a podcast where we explore ideas and concepts around leaders and leadership, teams and teamwork, and all things in between. I'm a former Royal Marines officer, Chris is a product manager from the world of software, and last week we were in the middle of a conversation with Dr. Waitman Bourne talking about small team leadership and his experience in the US Army Cavalry. So let's jump straight back into that conversation where I'm trying to compare my experiences in counter-piracy operations with Waitman's experiences running a tank platoon. Yeah, in a, in a previous episode, which we've already sort of alluded to, I talked about small team tactics and, and building successful small teams. And I talked about when I was doing counter-piracy operations, which is similar to the US Marine VBSS teams. So a small team sort of section size or squad size, so probably eight to 10 people. And I talked about how different it was running a team of eight to 10 specialists versus being a troop or platoon commander where you've got 30 and each section has their own section commander and so there's already a hierarchy. And I went from platoon command in combat in Afghanistan to counterpiracy small team command. But for you, you're doing that simultaneously because you've got your big your, team. your big team, you've got your four vehicles and they're they're all sub teams, but you are also in that tank with the three other guys. And I talked about the fact that I, as a small team commander, it was first name terms. It was very, uh, because we were living in each other's pockets, because it was a very small team that relied on each other in almost every aspect of what we did. It was very different to when I was a troop commander. But for you, you can't do that. So can you talk about the, the difficulties and the dynamic of having your intimate team of four that you are commanding as a vehicle and how you balance that against commanding the wider team. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that immediately jumps out at me is I, I mentioned earlier what happens if your vehicle breaks or, you know, if we're talking about a combat situation, your vehicle gets destroyed or damaged or something. If you survive or, if, or again, if we're a little bit, make it a little bit less dramatic, you know, if your vehicle breaks, you will get on another vehicle. Yeah. You know, and, and you will call, I will call, uh, you know, blue two and be like, blue two, come over here. And like, congratulations, you now have my broken vehicle and I'm taking your vehicle, but I also take your crew. I was about so, to say, do you swap crews? No, you... no, the, the crew stays with the vehicle. Yeah. So it's, you can really tell the difference when you meet, when you jump on somebody else's vehicle with their crew. I mean, it's almost like living in someone else's house. Because everything is slightly different and the dynamic, you don't know the people the same way. And it, it goes back to what it's like to have a, and again, this is when you have a good crew. I mean, I had, when I, at one point I had a gunner that was not quite as good uh, and, and was kind of struggling. And it makes things more difficult if, if you have to sort of worry about it. My first gunner is a guy named um, Rogelio Fulinara, who was from the Philippines. Uh, no, he's Puerto Rico, I think. Um, but he was, we called him the Jedi because he was just an amazing, I mean, like, he was great and I didn't have to do anything. Um, I never got a good nickname like that. <laughs> I want to be called the Jedi. I, I mean, he was, we, we, we called him like magic fingers because he was just, you know, he was great with the gun. Um, I, didn't, I never had to think about it. I think in a, in a, in a, the dynamics within the crew, I mean, we're never on a first name basis. Um, you know, that, that just isn't a, isn't the way that we do things. But particularly like my crew in Afghanistan in Iraq, you know, you it's like a family in the sense that, and I'm not trying to glamorize it or romanticize it, but you know, you you understand everybody's sort of routines, their foibles, the things that sort of get on their nerves or you know don't. So, for example, I'm not a morning person, which I know I picked the wrong job to be in the military, but I don't I don't really like mornings. I don't like getting up, and my crew knew that. And so, like, when, when we'd get up, you know, you'd have stand-to where everybody gets up and every vehicle's ready. And, you know, I, I did not like that. And they knew that. And they just wouldn't interact with me until I 
crack the first joke of the day and then they're like okay everything's fine like lieutenant's ready to go but like they they not that they tiptoed around me i mean i wasn't like a baby but like you know they knew when to joke with me and when not to right and i knew the same thing about them and i knew you know that in my first tank my gunner you know because it was basically his tank and he was like a neat freak and he you know you there there's certain things you don't do like you don't eat peaches in a tank um because that's it it's partially it's partially uh you don't eat canned peaches it's partially a, a a superstition but also because if you spill them they're like sticky peach syrup everywhere and it gets it becomes a giant mess you know and i knew like to keep it clean because he would get mad if i made a mess in the turret right and and so like you know these are things that you you understand and you know it, it's this isn't this isn't rocket science right i mean i think a lot of this comes down to basic respect for people and and understanding you know See, you say it's not rocket science and i mean you are obviously right but i think and th this is the whole reason why we ramble on for hours and hours things that are obvious to other people or obvious in retrospect are not as obvious necessarily at the time. There will have been businesses where you've got small groups and they fail miserably. You would have had presumably vehicles where everyone knew, yeah, those guys, they hate each other. And if push comes to shove, things will go badly. So I, I am a great believer in not underestimating the basics. The well, I mean, a, a good example of this, I think, I had a, my my first driver, and I think a, I also think a, a a a piece of evidence for sort of how meaningful and important this small these small group relationships are is the fact that twenty years later I still remember all their names, right? Uh, so Jamali Samuel was my driver, my and he he came to my unit. So you you ask the question like what it was like to come to my unit. Well, what was really cool is that when I first came to my unit, we were fielding the new M1A2 S, uh, SEP V2 tank. So we literally got issued brand new tanks right when I got there. With the new tank so, smell. Oh, the new tank smell. I mean, we we christened them. I have like a picture of me smashing a bottle of champagne against the foot of my tank to, to name it. All this stuff, right? Um, and my two, I had two brand new soldiers, Jamali Samuel and and um, and, J and Vincent, who was my um, my loader, and then I had this really, this really well uh, experienced gunner, and Samuel was the the nicest guy. Like he was just the most soft spoken kid, and he was my driver. And when we went to the field, I would cuss that kid up and down, and just yell at him left, or right. God damn it, go right, go right, go right, no left. I mean, because this is what happens when you're in a vehicle, right? I mean, you're you know you're because you're trying to, you know, not throw track, not drive in the wrong spot. It's a middle of, 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 in this case, sort of simulated combat. Things are stressful, and I would I would yell at him, and I would sometimes cuss him out, not not like brutally, but you know, I'd be like, "Ah, oh, what are you doing?" But very often, at the end of the day, when we're when we're coming in from the field, I would drive, and I'd let him be the commander, be up in the turret, and take my spot. Um, I mean, obviously, the 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 the, um, the my gunner was you know managing the tank, looking out, but. I'd put him up there and I'd get in the driver's seat um, and drive back. Now, part of it is because I wanted to drive and it's fun and you don't get to drive the tank <laughs> as an officer. But part of it is also like, look, it's a very un, it's very obvious, but unsaid thing that like, look, the, none of this is personal. And like, I, and like, you're a really great driver. And he was, he got to be really, really good. And I think he knew too, that just because I was yelling at him, like it, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like the toxic kind of, you know, screaming at somebody. It was just, the way things are, you know, but you make those sort and, you know, or you joke about it afterwards, you know, you're like, oh man, you're like, I, I really made a mistake here. I really did that, did this other thing or, or, you know, crashed the tank or got the tank stuck and these kinds of things. But, you know, it's, 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 again, it's just, it's, and this is, this is, again, I say it's, I, I say it's not rocket science, but it's just, it's just leadership by example. You know, it's I, just, it's, it's just, you, you, you are there to be in that tank and if if you don't have to leave it for whatever re for a sort of mission reason, you know, if my tank gets stuck, because one time we, I, me I remember one time at Fort Hood, we were, this is when I was in a tank. It was that we were doing a night attack simulated right, training, 
Uh, it was pouring down rain, just bucketing down rain. And we drove into a filled in vehicle fighting position. So basically, this is like when you dig a foxhole for a tank. So the tank can sort of be under underground with just a turret above. And they filled it, it had been filled in from a previous exercise, but the ground was the dirt was loose because it was it wasn't sort of and when it got we we sunk all the way down to the turret is how deep we were in this and it's pouring down rain and it's like November. So it's just cold. And I had to call my platoon sergeant to try to pull me out. And in order to get to the to the tow hooks, we literally had to dig down into the mud just to get to where we hooked the, the but you know we were all out there we were all out nobody was i was not sitting in the tank on the radio we were all out in the rain getting cold and wet and disgustingly muddy and eventually we had to take two tanks to pull us out because that's how stuck we were you know but and again it's, it's again it's not it's not you know it's not massively insightful but you know there are other people who make who make different choices or stand around and watch or whatever but like you know you get out and you you help you help and you get dirty um i, you know. I wonder whether the small team thing though i mean you, you've said multiple times with a lot of humility which i think is another good leadership sign is <clears throat> you know none of it's rocket science but i wonder whether another way to describe small team leadership in this way is it's real-time feedback so you've you said it brilliantly earlier you've got nowhere to hide you know mm. you when when you're not in that small unit when i'm when i'm talking to my team if i screw up or do something stupid there's a pretty fair chance people didn't see it or i can make people look the other way there's there's places to hide whereas you were literally in a place where everyone could see what you were doing and what's more everyone could see what everyone else was doing i mean i would imagine weak members of the team become obvious really quickly and well that... yeah and it's i think one of the challenges to get back to the earlier question one of the challenges is when things aren't going well right i mean it's all great when you have that perfect that perfect team like my like my first tank for for most of my tank platoon time was great um but eventually I had to promote my gunner because he was good and he deserved a tank of his own. And I, I had to, I had to do it, um, which was unfortunate because I liked him a lot <laughs> and he did a really good job, but I gave him his own vehicle, um, you know, because he, he got promoted, he, he made rank and he, he, it was his time. And I got another gunner who was not nearly as good as that guy. And it's almost like, it's almost like having a second wife and, and expecting the second wife to do all the things that the first wife did or, or, or comparing, you know, comparing kids or whatever, you know, like they're just, they're different people. Um, and I, and I had to, I had to supervise him a lot more. I had a lot less confidence in him than I had in the other guy. And, you know, we, you know, we, it, it can cause, it caused, you know, stress because you know i would chew him out in a way that i never had to chew out the other guy um and and the same way when you're in a larger unit or a corporation you know you can you can call someone in your office and say you did a crappy job about this i need you to fix yourself and then they'll leave but like when i tell my gunner like you totally messed this up i don't expect you to ever do that again roger sir and then he's sitting like <laughs> Two feet away from me for the rest Awkward. of the for the rest of the time. I mean, you know, you're because that's just the way it is, right? Uh, you know, it's it's a different. You have to, and and I think for me, maybe that that was challenging because you know nobody likes conflict, and nobody likes to sit with conflict, you know, and, and but you have to in in a small group, you know, and and if you get mad at somebody, um, or if they get mad at you, you have to kind of sit there literally with it because it's in there there's several things that we're drawing out here that are that are really important and one is as you said chris that you know, when you're in these situations and there's nowhere to hide people's weaknesses are exposed but the way you described it is you said weak people actually we're all weak we all have 
weaknesses and strengths and they all get exposed. And what you end up doing is as a group is realizing that everybody has vulnerabilities. You know, as you've said, Waitman, you're not a morning person. And so the team normalizes around that and they accept that. And the things that can be developed and the things that can be taught, learnt, exercised, practiced are and so weaknesses are slowly eroded out of the team. And of course, there are inbuilt things that are just never going to change. Well, I was going to say, there's there's the line, which is there's things that you can develop with people and you say, that wasn't great, do it again, but they have the potential. And then there's presumably the line where you say, you are going to get me killed one day and for the safety of my team and for the sake of the mission... I think you, you that, shouldn't be a part of the team. That's quite a rare circumstance. And actually, what you end up doing is developing people to a point where they are competent and work. I mean, I think that's the thing. that's the thing, you know, and, and I'm not the first person to say this, but, you know, most people if, don't join an organization, the military or anything else, in order to do a bad job at it. Yeah. Um, and and so I think a lot of people in the, even the military and elsewhere if they're doing a bad job of their job, it may be, and, I, and this may be optimistic, but it may be because they haven't been properly trained in how to do it. And so, you know, in, in some ways, ultimately, you know, that's your job. Um, where it becomes difficult is for an officer, particularly a junior officer, to train an NCO in something that he should have learned how to do from other NCOs a long time ago. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's that's a challenging position because that's a position where, you know, you have the responsibility and you have the authority, but you may not have the authority of experience. You know, that's your job. Um, where it becomes difficult is for an officer, particularly a junior officer, to train an NCO in something that he should have learned how to do from other NCOs a long time ago. Yes. You know, and, and, I, and I think that's that's a challenging position because that's a position where, you know, you have the responsibility and you have the authority, but you may not have the authority of experience um, con con compared to, for example, uh, I'll give you an example, like an actual anecdote. Um, you know, one of the things that, again, this is not, does not make me Alexander the Great, um, but officers eat last. Officers eat last. And the senior NCO, my platoon sergeant, eats last. So the whole platoon eats first. I eat last. My platoon sergeant. The standard. The standard thing was if if we were eating in a, as a group, which you don't always do, because sometimes you you pick up your food when you pick up your fuel your fuel, and so it's it's whatever order you do that in. But if if say we're at gunnery, and everyone's going to eat, then you know the whole platoon goes. Sergeant Yankee and I stand at the end of the line drinking coffee, or whatever, until everybody's eaten. And once they've all gone through the line. He goes before me and I go after him and I get food. This is not an amazingly innovative tactic. I think no, most everybody does this. So the, the but I had a I had a when I took over my second platoon, I had an E6 platoon sergeant. So that's normally an E7 slot. It's normally a sergeant first class slot. I had a guy who was run rank below that who was filling who was filling the position. And he was weak. And I had to, you know, at one point he was eating and I was like, what are you doing? Like you don't eat like you stand here with me and we eat last like this is not what are you doing right um but that was awkward because i shouldn't have to tell certainly have to tell an e6 a staff sergeant that like this is not the way we do things but but by, by that point i was a senior first lieutenant and i've been around long enough to know a good deal about at least what ncos should be doing in terms of generally general leadership and how they're and how they should be doing their job you know, and so those kinds of corrections were easier for me because I had the I had the authority both of my rank, which is the weakest kind of authority, as well as the authority of my experience, which was that like, hey, you know, I'm not some fresh kid off the block that has no idea what he's doing. Like I've but but it was difficult, you know, to be like, Hey, come on, Sergeant, what are you doing? Like, stop. You can't do that. But I think it's really interesting that you're finding something difficult that is a relatively well understood cultural practice that is actually doesn't the eking last at, when you're on the ranges or, or wherever 
doesn't change the output of the team. It's a second order effect. It creates the conditions where you have the right culture. It creates a, a dynamic where you are making a statement. Going back to your point earlier, Chris, where you said in the commercial world, you know, our teams are optimized for the output. We don't have time for, you know, learning in exercises. We don't have time to shadow people and bring them on. I, I, I would counter that and say, you're, we've talked many times on this podcast about situations where inefficiency is created at the point where the problem, the crisis exists. Everything we're talking about here, the time where you were you know, digging out your tank in the rain on an exercise, you weren't at war. At the time you're standing in the line waiting for chow, telling a senior NCO that they need to stand back and let the, let the soldiers go first, you're not at war. And what it does is it means that by the time you get to war, you are not quite ready. You're never ready. You have to you know, adjust quite quickly to to the combat situation and it is always different but you've done a huge amount of preparation when when we're talking in the commercial world about operations you know, there is there's no capacity for exercising there's no capacity for identifying where people are weak and therefore bringing them on and developing them or i say no capacity that's not unfair no no but you but, but it's but a, nowhere near as it's much. a limited and ad hoc and 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 i think everyone gets this otherwise we wouldn't be here I think there needs to be more. Yes. But I think um, there are people who lack the the visceral experience of having done that. Yep. So you, you know, uh, to some degree, Waitman, you know these things to be self-evident because you've lived them. And very quickly, if you didn't do these simple things, bad things would happen. Whereas in commercial organisations, that's very there's a different set of motivations and history. Well, how how often does something really go badly wrong? Well, really badly wrong, maybe once a year. Mm. Well, you know, we could make some extra money by doing more of X project in that time, or we could save that money for a rainy day. I think it's, I think it's something that leadership teams in the commercial world need to really think carefully about yeah. this is do we want to be good or do we want to be the best we can be good and not do these things we could be the best and do them so I, I think it's just the natural setup perhaps a different way of saying this i think the military this is going to sound terrible has the advantage where you are training for a kinetic life-threatening outcome and so people are very very thoughtful about training for success. Yeah. These things are are the cliche life and death. In a commercial world, they are rarely so. And so the motivations are different. So it's hard. But I wanted to come well, back. Wait, you uh, well, just one thing off of that. I think another one of the differences between the, the commercial world or the corporate world is that you can fire people. Um yes. You know, like you can yes, you can fire people in the military. Yes, you can relieve people of command, et cetera, et cetera. But that's that's very much a nuclear option, mm. um, and it's it's also very and oftentimes very difficult to do, um, because either you have nobody to replace them, or it's just an administrative issue. I mean, I remember as an example, we were on a field exercise, and my senior scout fell asleep, and his whole his whole crew must have been asleep because I. I kept calling him on the radio and I'm like, hello, like to the extent that I, I found his vehicle and we drove up next to it and I got out of the vehicle with a sledgehammer and pounded on the turret until he opened the hatch. He popped the hatch out and it looked like, you know, a newborn baby. And I fired him on the spot. I said, you're fired. Now, really, he was just fired for the rest of the exercise because I was so hot. I was so mad. I'm like, you're done. Like you're fired. Like get in the Get in the gunner's seat. Your gunner is now in command of your track. And and that had the right effect, but he wasn't fired for good. I, I he wasn't he wasn't yeah. kicked out of the army. You that you, you certainly don't do that. You know, he I was stuck with him, but that was a that was a sort of you know wake up call kind of thing. Um, but in the military, you know, you you just you can't fire people as easily. 
Um, you can't get rid of them, even if even if, even if they're awful. I mean, they're, you know, for when I when I got to my first platoon, I had a guy on the rolls for like four or five months who had been AWOL for like a year. You know, I mean, like he'd been gone. Um, so I think for better or for worse, you have to train the people that you have. But isn't that isn't you know, that great though? Get rid of them. It changes your perspective on things. I we've you know I I get. You hire people to be good enough for the thing you need them for in the commercial world. And then six months later, if they're not good enough, there's this terrible, we need to get rid of them. You need to manage them out is the dreadful phrase mm. in the commercial world. As opposed to, and I, I actually had this in a previous organization where I think, you know, you lie to yourself after these, I said to the CEO, you're very keen for this person to leave. Has anyone tried to give this person the skills that would mean they didn't leave? And, and almost the, the implication, which I feel quite strongly in many cases, there are some times when just the wrong person in the wrong place and it's bad for them, bad for you, but letting people go because of the lack of skills, I think reflects more on the organization or as much on the organization as it does on the person. So. We need to take a short break now. We'll be right back. Yeah, I mean, I will say that, you know, the one really the one leadership moment that I'm the most proud of from my whole time in the army was, was with somebody who had been, who had, who had, who had failed. Um, this was in my scout platoon where um, we got a, a guy who'd been busted from sergeant. He was a sergeant and he had been demoted to uh, E4. He, he'd lost a rank and, you know, he came to my platoon I took him on my track, even though some people were like, you probably shouldn't, shouldn't do that. And, you know, I, I pulled him aside. His name was, his name was um, Hayes, Sergeant Hayes. And he was specialist Hayes at that time. And I pulled him aside on the first day. And uh, cause he had come from headquarters. He'd been in, in the headquarters troop and he had done something. I don't even know what he'd done. He'd done something, gotten in big trouble and gotten busted down. And I pulled him aside. And I said, Hey, Sergeant Hayes or say specialist Hayes. Do you know what I've heard about you? And he's like, oh, sir, like, you know, like, and I was like, I was like, I don't care. Like you, I don't care. But what anybody says, you, you start moment one with me right now. And I said, if you, if you do your job, I'll get you your stripes back and you'll get promoted back to sergeant and you'll be on your, you'll be on your way. The look on his face was just like, as if I had sort of given him a reprieve from the hangman, but he did a great job and he, and he got it. He got he got his sergeant and he went on, you know, he got promoted above that. And again, it's not, it's not amazing, but it, I, in my, in my life, I have had people when I've messed up who said, you know, you've messed up big time, but we're not giving up on you. We're not just going to like cash out. We're going to let, give you a chance to come back from it. And, you know, when you're in an organization that you can't just, you know, kick somebody out when they do something even things that are really bad, um, it it gives you that opportunity to to watch them succeed, which is one of the best feelings as a leader. Is when one of your when you put some your faith in somebody, and and they and they do it, and you're like, I yes, you did it, you know. And I think that's for me that 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 what that's one of the things that makes me feel the best. And it's a selfish makes me feel the best about myself about my own time in that particular unit because. You know, it wasn't necessarily the easiest thing. And this gets to, I think, what we were talking about earlier in terms of training somebody. It's hard when you have somebody who is not performing to the standard to train them because it means giving them more responsibility and forcing them to step up and do what they need to do rather than what often happens. I think this is a is a, something that happens in the civilian world as well, where you have a, a, a subordinate who does a really good job and as a result, they get all the jobs, which is yeah. not fair to them either. You know, you have something hard you need to be done, or someone needs to stay late, or someone has a, they have a really hard task. You shouldn't always be giving it 
to the guy who does the best or the lady who does the best in your organization because you're victimizing them. You're making them, you know, carry the load. But it's also very challenging as a leader to to say, okay, I'm going to put Sergeant So-and-so in charge of this vehicle display, knowing that that means I'm going to have to do more work myself in watching out for them and supervising them and giving them perhaps more guidance than just saying, oh, well, have Sergeant Johnson do it because I know he's he's incredible and he'll he'll do it without thinking. Because eventually they start to, you know, your your subordinates will start to resent that. Like, how come I always have to do the hard thing? And after a certain point, because you're really good at it, it no longer, you know, makes them feel any better. Because it's like, oh, I got to do it again, you know, because I'm, I'm the best person to do it. So you, you um, this is probably not right, but sort of you at West Point and through to your, the time you stepped into a tank, there was a concept of leadership that you were taught and you were trained. For want of a better word, large team leadership and then you spend time with your teams and you learn how did that change your perspectives on leadership i mean was it like no no this was just a a subset of how we think about it or did you walk away with a very different sense of what leadership meant in any situation i i think so i mean i, I have to first say that leadership at west point <laughs> is not the same as the army I was not a great cadet at West Point uh, in terms of like the military side of things and like the, you know, the leadership and like not getting in trouble and cleaning my room and that kind of thing. I wasn't, I wasn't great. And, and part of that was my immaturity and my own issue. And part of that is it's all pure leadership. So it's all artificial in a certain yeah. sense, even though you're, even though, you know, yes, you're technically a cadet private and I'm technically a cadet lieutenant, you know, you're three years behind me. You're from the same basic background we're all going to be lieutenants in four years anyway. It's it's artificial at a lot of levels, and and it, and it, be, and it at, at its worst, it becomes kind of a rinky dink sort of like situation. Um, it's not the army by any stretch. I think one of the things where I grew the most as a person was in not it was it was in was in keeping my ego in check uh, because I have a feeling as a cadet. And, you know, you know, before I graduated, you know, you at West Point at a certain level, you can't help but think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread because you're you're going to be a West Point officer, blah, blah, blah. Now, I didn't fall into that to that extent, but being in the military and being in the kind of units that I was in helped me very quickly to to put myself in the right in the right sort of perspective of, you know. That, that, you know, I, I have a lot to learn from, from everyone around me. And I think one of the, one of the biggest challenges for both junior leaders, as well as someone coming into a new situation is when you have the responsibility, but not necessarily the authority of experience, Yeah, you know? So like from day one, like when I came to my platoon, if the next day, one of my soldiers had gotten a, a, a driven their car drunk into the front of a restaurant. I'd be in front of the commander and he'd be asking me what the hell's going on with this soldier, you know, blah, blah. blah. And I would say, sir, it's my, it's my responsibility. You know, we'll take care of it. Even though I literally had nothing to do with it at that point, it's challenging. It was, I think one of the biggest challenges for, for leaders coming into the military in that sense is, is balancing that balancing, you know, I don't know a lot of things with I'm still responsible. Um, and the, the example that I'll use is, I don't know, Gary, they have this in, in, in the Marines, but there's this thing in the army called NCO business where yeah. they're like, sir, sir, that's NCO business. And that's like warning, like the hairs in the back of your neck should go up at some level. Right yes. uh, at the at the functional level, it means there are certain things that are just not your job to worry about. My job as an NCO is to deal with these things. It's not your job, and in fact, it's insulting if you, as an officer, get down in my business and try to tell me how to do the things that I'm supposed to do. It's dysfunctional when NCO business means we're doing things that are shady, 
And we don't want you to know what those things are because they're not necessarily above board. Yeah. And the challenge for an officer, I think often is to, to walk that line. And so my, and it, and this is something that I was very clear on in the beginning, which was, I said, I said, look, I'm not going to tell you how to suck an egg. You know, I'm not going to tell you, but I need to know, I need to know what you're doing. So if I ask you what you're doing, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm asking you because I, you know, want to tell you to do it differently. But if the commander comes to me about something, I need to know what, what, what it was. So uh, an example, let's say a soldier is substandard in some way, uniform or whatever. If I say, you know, it's, let's say, he's not, let's say he's not good at, at physical training. He's not well doing well on his, on his physical tests. And so is going to, I'm going to say private so-and-so needs to do better. Needs to have a better score. Sergeant so-and-so is going to say, Roger, sir, I got it. Now, I may say, Sergeant, what's your plan for getting this this guy? You know, And that's it, not because I'm going to tell him, I, I think you should take him on two-mile runs and then do this and that other thing. But also, it's not. I don't want to have it be Sir's NCO business because he's going to take the guy out back behind the headquarters and beat the crap out of him, right? So, I mean, like, this is, this is the balance, right, is that I need to know what your plan is i need to know well, what you're doing but the, i don't necessarily need to tell you how to do it the, the and you don't necessarily have to check was, with me i think the example there was demonstrate to me that you have a plan that will achieve the outcome i almost don't care what the plan is but i want you to demonstrate you have a plan you didn't just say sure we'll take care of this right but the challenge the challenge then becomes for example in maintenance right because one of the things that is, is self-evident is that a thing that, something that's very different when it comes to a light infantry unit versus a, a mechanized unit is that maintenance is a big deal because you're maintaining these giant vehicles. And so, you know, if if I'm if I need a new part and all of a sudden the part appears and I say, Where'd that part come from? And I hear, Don't worry about that, sir, it's NCO business, like then like that my the hairs in the back of my neck go up because I'm like, Where did you get that? Right? Where where did it come from? You know, like I because if you've stolen it or gotten it in some other shady kind of way, I could be on the hook for that, right? And and just saying, oh, don't worry, don't worry about that, sir. It's like, uh, no, I need to worry about that because I'm the one that's going to get fired if it turns out that, you know, you stole that from some other unit or whatever, right? So it's, it's, it's balancing this ability of recognizing what the areas of expertise are for your various people in your unit, letting them do their job um, versus... Be, being in, in in command of the information, right? And this is one of the areas where, an example from my unit, um, where we had an officer who had been prior service. He had been enlisted before, before he became an officer. You know, and and every every commissioning source and every route to commissioning has its positives and negatives, right? Um, so I'm not I'm not suggesting that someone from an academy or from ROTC or prior service is better or worse than anybody else. Um, but in this particular instance. Um, his NCOs really didn't like it because he'd been an NCO and kind of some of the ways that he led as an officer were much more similar to NCO stuff. And they were, he was telling NCOs how to do their job. And they were like, sir, you're not an NCO anymore. You're a Lieutenant. Like we got this, you know, stop telling us how to do our job. You know? And I think that's something that again, you know, is a symptom of understanding where you fit in the ecosystem of of the leadership chain and and how you should be doing things. And it's also demonstrating trust in your subordinates, you know, eventually that like, you're not going to, you're not going to screw me over by stealing an engine from the unit next door or whatever. I don't know if that makes sense uh, in terms yeah, of, yeah. you know, completely. Well, look, we're, we're coming towards the end and we've not taxed your historical knowledge yet. And uh, we, we did one of our influencers ep episodes and I think you can settle something for us once and for all. Oh, man. Um, uh, Gareth doesn't know I'm going to ask this, but I bet he's going to have a pained look on his face. Erwin Rommel, great tactician and strategist, or terrible? What's the Waitman-born historical armoured warfare view? Look, you've, you're, look, you can't see this, everyone, but... But Waitman's smiling, waving his head around, and now stroking his chin. Look, I, I, I'm not a military historian. 
nor do I claim to be. My my sense from everything that I've ever sort of read or imbibed is that Rommel is a guy who's promoted beyond his abilities. And, and if you look at it, he he does he does have on his face a, a meteoric rise from yeah. essentially a battalion regimental commander to a division to a corps in an absurdly short amount of time. You know, and, and, and by all accounts, he was quite good in the Battle of France and quite good you know, as a regimental commander, et cetera, and, and in the First World War, uh, and then woeful in, in the desert in the sense of, I think there's one of those one of those situations where people say, look, Rommel was so great, and if only he had more gas and tanks and ammunition, he would have been amazing. And artillery but, and a worse enemy. And- but, that's, but, but that's part of being a leader is like, once you get to a certain level, logistics is is just as important as anything else. And so, listen, you know, if, listen to that. Brilliant tactician, operate, operationally that. poor. Well, I think but we you, won. I mean, the woeful. This but is- you can't be, you can't be, a, at some point, you can't be a brilliant tactician if your tactics exist in, an, in a space outside of the realm of logistics. I, right? I absolutely I mean, like, agree, but I, I think that, that's can't. where, that's where the overpromotion comes in. Because you can, at the, at, at the, platoon level you can at the squadron or company level to an extent once you start getting to your know, regiment brigade certainly at division you absolutely can't yeah no it's true it's true and i mean and i was never i was never in my in my because again i was only in the army for five years so I, I didn't i was never the support platoon leader and i was never a company commander so you know as a platoon leader the 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 fuelers showed up and they yeah. i just somebody told me here's where the fuelers are Here's a grid coordinate. I'd show up. I'd get gas. I'd go out and, and do great things. Uh, I never had to worry about like how much fuel am I consuming on a daily basis and like how much ammunition and like where is it coming from? You know, and one of the things that I've gotten a greater appreciation for in listening to the, the We Have Ways podcast, for example, is is logistics. It's just, you know, how much time and effort goes into, and this is somebody who's in the military. But I think I, in many ways I took it for granted, you know, how much how much time and effort goes into getting that every gallon of fuel from, you know, a refinery in the States to my fuel tank in Iraq. I mean, that's that's amazing. And it's thankless work, yeah. um, you know, that nobody gets any credit for unless it goes wrong, in which case, you know, everyone's immediately like losing their minds. Um, but getting back to Rommel and and to the Germans in general, part of it, people say, oh, you know, how could the Germans have won in in, in the Eastern Front? Well, they they probably couldn't have. And so probably the good idea is don't attack Russia in the (laughs) first place, you know? Um, Regardless of how tactically proficient you may or may not be, you know, you can't just say, well, I I was really good, but I didn't have enough enough stuff. Yeah. Because we don't live in that world. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, which is which is great to hear. Um, I think it's been a uh, it's once again, Waitman. You know, we are internally grateful because it's this, been. This is just an excuse to hear cool, interesting stuff. Well, I was going to say we've been talking for you know over an hour now, and and we've we've not we've not actually told any war stories at all, and I think that's indicative of there's so much to get into in just the cultural aspects of how you do small team leadership, but also development of leaders of small teams that builds them. And I think we've alluded to this quite well in this podcast. You build people through experience, allowing them enough rope to make mistakes, but not enough to hang themselves. You surround them with experienced people. You you force them into situations where they have to make judgment calls. And then you promote them to the next level and let them do it all over again. And you do it iteratively in a culture where you can't get rid of people because they're not performing to you know the best standard. And how often do we hear in the commercial world people say really lovely things like, I want to recruit people because they've got the right values and I can train them later. And then they don't give them any space to train and learn. And you know you get quarter two, quarter three in, and they're like, we need to manage this person out because they're not performing. In the military, don't do that. And and we talked about, and I love the fact that we got into the you know, 
small teams expose people's weaknesses. And rather than that being a everybody point fingers, get rid of them because we want the best team, it, you've got to, uh, as my troop commander when I was in training would put it, you've got to piss with the cock you've got. I'm sorry. So <laughs> you have to work with you have to work with the team that is there. And you do that on exercise, you do that in camp, you do that in operations because you can't sack people. Well, and, and this is something um, that that um that we didn't talk about because we didn't really talk about gunnery, but one of the things that I think highlights that is that in order to be deployable, um, and then also a big deal as as sort of a leader is you have to be part of a qualified crew, meaning that you have taken your your crew, your tank, um, downrange, and you go through a series of you know eight different firing tables, where table eight is the last most difficult one that that is your qualification, right? And you have to pass that in order to have a qualified crew, and that's a readiness statistic just along with how many vehicles are working is how many qualified crews do you have? But yeah. that qualified crew is specific to those four people. And if somebody moves out, you now have an unqualified crew. So you can't, for example, you can't, you can't pass a Sergeant so-and-so to each tank because he's great yeah. and have him shoot the gunnery for every tank. It's those four guys and yeah. those four guys are part of that qualified crew. And if you break up that qualified crew, then all of a sudden you are tracking that this, this is a readiness issue that we have not, we don't have a qualified crew. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it is exactly that, you know, these are the people that you go to war with, because these are the people that you have and you qualify, you know, you go down range with that crew. Cause you can't just, Oh, well, Sergeant, Sergeant so-and-so is not very great. Let's swap him out with somebody else. Yeah, and, and that scales up. To make it. So you, right. your qualified crew is part of a platoon, and that platoon is part of a troop and battalion, and 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 you, and that's where the term formed unit comes from, because you are formed of these different smaller all groups. up from these different groups, and you go to war as a formed unit. So there's something really, I think, special about the the generation, the fourth generation of formations to then go and deliver on operations which well and and i would say one more thing sorry i didn't mean to interrupt gareth but like for me personally you, you asked sort of what are the what are some of the sort of eye-opening moments or, or or sort of transformational moments for me and one of them and this again is very basic um but was being exposed to different people you know i grew up in 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 a relatively well-off middle-class household. I went to a private Episcopal school from kindergarten through university, which was predominantly white upper middle-class kids. And then I went to West Point, which is slightly more diverse, but again, there's a, a certain level of sort of high excelling people regardless. You know, I was not exposed to lots of different kinds of people. And, and one of the really amazing and good things fundamentally good things about the military is that it forces people i mean i'm not saying you know I, i'm not racist it wasn't that i you know have deep hidden prejudices against anybody um but it forces different people together yeah. and and you have you you have to learn to empathize with and learn from other people who have had different life experiences than you have you know maybe different ethnicities come from different parts of the country have different levels of education and i think and again, it, that's just that's just um, maximized in a tank crew because you're you know it's you're just with a very very small group of people, and and you know all of my tank crews people have come from all over the place, you know ethnically, socioeconomically, et cetera, et cetera, and you know you have to learn how to get along with all those people, and 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 I think that's that's an incredibly valuable, just an incredible valuable life experience. Oh, it's almost um, as if diversity is a good thing. It is. It's a fantastic thing. I think. I think we we we're becoming boring when we talk about this. Um, look, I, I mean, you you've sort of talked about the things you took away. For me, what I love is your statement. It's not rocket science. Is that you've talked about pretty much most of the core leadership ideas we have talked about, and your statement was there's nothing clever about them. 
they're all pretty simple. And I think that's really true. And I think that means this is accessible to everyone. And I love that as a way of sort of describing this. Waitman, as always, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Um, I am disappointed we haven't had stories of peeing in tanks and all sorts of other things. I mean, I can tell you all about, you know, if you want. It's not. Well, it's I not, think we're going to have to leave that for the Not an amazing next, story. The next but, time we come out. No, but this is what everyone wants to hear. This is the clickbait. And we actually got all the serious stuff instead mm. of the clickbait. But look, thank you really very much for coming on. Thanks um, for having me. Thank you for, um, you know, I love the stories. And it's it, we, we keep saying this. Our joy is having people on who come and bring us different views and different stories. It's fantastic. We wish you every luck on your podcast. In fact, you don't <laughs> thank you. Luck. You don't need luck at all. And we'll we'll we will be sure to mention it uh, on our podcast Absolutely. and get people to come and talk to it. Um, look for for people listening. Um, Waitman's been on before. Please go back and listen to the the episode that that he was on. Um, We've also got all the other episodes. Go listen to. We've we've seen a. I think it's safe to say a surge of listeners since Christmas. We have. So we're we're really pleased that we're continuing to sort of grow interest from all parts of the world. Um, if you're listening and you want to get in touch, um, battlingwithbusiness at gmail.com. We would love to hear for those of you who indulge in the email. For those of you who uh, exist on the platform formerly known as Twitter, we are battling with biz. Um, we genuinely would love to hear from you. Um, we're also grateful for all the people who have been um, posting reviews. Uh, I didn't talk to you about this, Gareth. I was driving home with my son tonight. He said, Dad, you've got a score of 4.9 on Spotify for your podcast. That's really good. Um, please keep doing that, people. Please keep uh, writing reviews, recommending us, because um, it helps us with the algorithms and we'd love more people to hear about it. Um, other than that, though, um, thank you for joining us and um, we'll speak to you all very soon. Thanks, Waitman. Thanks, Waitman. Thanks for having me, as always. It's great. Very good.